Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Julia Lee. Dr. Julia Lee is an Associate Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California at Irvine and the author of uh, Interracial Encounters, Reciprocal Representations in African and Asian American Literatures and Understanding Maxine Hong Kingston. Today, she's here to talk to us about the wonderful book she published called Racial Rogue. Uh, Julia, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Morteza. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we start, can you tell us a little about yourself and also your area of expertise and this book, Racial Road? How did the book come about? Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of Asian American Studies with a PhD in English and a focus on American literature and culture. Um, like a lot of ethnic studies, these professors, my scholarly profile doesn't really fit neatly into disciplinary categories. So my PhD is in English and I'm housed in an Asian American studies department, but I teach primarily non-literature based courses on Asian American experience. And my research looks at Asian American literature and culture and U.S. narratives of race in a comparative framework. So there's no easy category to put me in, I think. Um, how did this book come about? So um, my first book, Interracial Encounters, which you just mentioned, um, was on Afro-Asian narratives of the early 20th century, um, early 20th century African-American and Asian-American literatures. And in that book, I have a chapter uh, in which I examine two works that depict a Chinese man riding a Jim Crow train in the American South. One of those works was... Um, the Mayor of Tradition by Charles Chestnut. And the other is a memoir by a Chinese diplomat named Wu Ting Fang, who uh, was living in Washington, DC um, during the period of his um, diplomatic assignment. And so in researching and writing that chapter, I realized that there was just so much material on race and the railroad, um, not only in that time period, the time period of my monograph, but um, basically throughout the history of railroad travel in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the racial railroad really started out as a list. It was basically a running tally of literary works uh, that represent race in some way on the train. And it wasn't until a few years into the project that I realized um, that the scope of the book needed to be bigger, mm -hmm. simply because uh, the train is really everywhere. It's not just in literature, it's in film, it's on the television, it's in paintings, it's in photographs, it's in songs. So I realized um, that it couldn't just be kind of a literary analysis of the train. Um, I also recognized or realized pretty early on that the occurrence of the train in American culture um, didn't really seem to be dictated by the prevalence of railroad travel. So mm. I say this in the book, one would expect that cultural representations of the train would have declined as rail ridership um, did in the early to mid 20th century once um, the car takes over and, and, and uh, airline travel becomes more affordable and feasible. Uh, but that's just not the case. So trains pop up continually in our cultural landscape and um, it's our absence in our daily lives and ubiquity in our cultural lives that suggests to me that it serves a purpose outside of transportation or mm -hmm. you know, transit. 
Um, so I argue that it's ultimately the train's ability to tell a story, you know, or to enact a narrative that makes it such a wonderful vehicle, um, there's such a prevalent vehicle for, you know, in US culture, and that basically there's no story that dominates or haunts this nation the way that the story of race does. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the kind of origin mm -hmm. of the book. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Oh, sorry, I forgot to unmuse myself. <laughs> so I must confess, <laughs> I studied English literature, but I was kind of embarrassed to know, I mean, not to have paid attention to this when there are two great things I learned from the book. First of all, when we when we talk about railroad, the first thing we think we think about is African Americans. But we tend to forget, or or maybe this area of study hasn't really been um, focused on Asian Americans uh, who were involved in yeah. railroad. And the other thing is just as you mentioned, ubiquity of the trope of train as a narrative. Uh, it was only after reading your book I said, yeah, I've I've come across this trope a lot, but I've never paid attention to it as a narrative device, which. Uh, which we'll talk about. Uh, before that, can you tell us a little about um, rail workers? We talk about the first uh, transcontinental railroad. So were most of the workers from China or were they already living in America? Were they brought in China? Can you tell us a little about that? Just to establish a bit of background. Of course. So uh, the first transcontinental railroad was built between 1863 and it was completed in 1869. Um, and there were two companies that um, handled uh, that. And the first was the Union Pacific Railroad, which built the eastern half of the line. Um, and then the Central Pacific Railroad, which um, built the western half of the line, essentially from San Francisco to Promontory Summit, Utah, where the two lines uh, met each other. So it was the Central Pacific who employed Chinese railroad workers in large numbers. Now, we, we don't know exactly how many, um, but of the approximately 15,000 men that the Central Pacific employed, um, the estimates are that about 12,000 of them were, were of Chinese descent. So um, the Chinese, uh, the Central Pacific, excuse me, didn't start employing Chinese laborers until 1865, and that was in response to a threatened strike um, by the men who were working on the railroad. It was extraordinarily difficult for the Central Pacific to recruit laborers because even though um, their segment of the line was a little bit shorter than the Union Pacific's portion, the terrain was much more rugged. Um, it was much more, the weather was much more difficult. They were, they were going to have to cut through the Sierra Nevadas in order to complete the line. So they had real problems um, with labor, basically. So what happened was they, um, there was a threatened strike, as I said, in 1865. And Charles Crocker, who was one of, who was the Central Pacific's main contractor, decided to hire Chinese men, uh, basically. And that started the process of um, the Chinese basically becoming the labor force for the Central Pacific. There were Chinese laborers, there were Chinese migrants living in the United States at that time. Many of them had come over um, during the gold rush in the 1850s, the previous decade, but um, they were not present in the kinds of numbers that the Central Pacific really needed. So the company then sent recruiters to China uh, directly to hire men to bring them directly uh, to the United States to finish the railroad. Um, and so, yes, most of the men were recruited from China uh, to come work on the railroad. And do we have any firsthand account of their experience in the United States, or is it through secondary sources such as paintings and photographs that we get an understanding of their everyday life? Yeah. So unfortunately, as far as I know, um, 
we don't have any firsthand written accounts about building the railroad written by Chinese railroad workers. And that's not terribly surprising. Um, the labor that they were undertaking was really long and backbreaking. They didn't have very much time off. They weren't being paid very well. They weren't being fed very well or housed very well, uh, especially in comparison to their white counterparts. They definitely must have written letters home mm -hmm. when they were sending back uh, monetary remittances and Perhaps many of them kept journals about their experiences, but these things have not been preserved. Um, and so part of what my book is exploring is how Chinese Americans, contemporary Chinese American artists and writers grapple with the absence of that history. Actually, I shouldn't say absence, actually, the, the erasure of that history. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I think, why so many Chinese American and Chinese diasporic writers and artists uh, write about the railroad. It's it's uh, it's grappling with what it means to have a hole in that history, um, and so yeah, we we don't. The only the only kind of archival materials we have are the the records that were kept by the Central Pacific, and then some of the letters that some of the um, like the foremen or other employees wrote home about their experiences working with the Chinese. We have some of those kinds of materials saved, but any kind of firsthand account. I've never, I've never run across it. Mm. And uh, let's talk about train as a narrative device. Uh, as, as you said earlier, it's ubiquitous. It's in movies. It's in paintings. It's in stories. Uh, can you define or let's explain what you mean by train as a narrative device? Yeah, this is a very, this is an important foundation to the book. Mm. Um, that the train isn't just a setting or a backdrop for these stories, but is actually like co-constitutive of the narratives themselves. So I say that there is an affinity between narrative and the train, and I call it a structural or an operational kinship between the two. And so in making that claim, I'm weaving together a lot of different kind of cultural and theoretical threads. One of them is the fact that the train emerged um, or gained popularity really around the same time as uh, the cinema did. Um, so of course, film is perhaps the most dominant form of storytelling of the 20th and 21st century. And Lynn Kirby um, in her book, Parallel Tracks, details how the film industry really integrated the train into its shooting kind of techniques and vocabulary. Um, I also weave together a thread from Michel de Certeau's The Practice of Everyday Life and his theory that movement and narrative are both linked by the concept of metaphor, which in um, the ancient Greek, which in the original Greek means to transfer or to carry over. So this idea of movement is really important in storytelling. Um, and de Certeau calls the train um, a spatial trajectory, right? So he says, as passengers move through it, they enact certain kinds of spatial practices that elude the rules that are placed down on, on movement. Um, and so the train encompasses a lot of these contradictions between movement and, mo and immobility or compliance and resistance um, or discipline and kind of um, discipline and kind of unrestricted movement, right? So the, the other connection I draw between narrative and the train, it's, it's a more poetic one, I suppose, but it's in the structure of the railroad itself. So um, Nana Verhoff argues that the parallel lines of a receding railroad track, they approach each other, but never touch, that this is a perfect enactment of linear perspective, right? But I argue in the book, it's also a perfect enactment of what narrative is structurally. So Jay Hillis Miller talks about narrative or stories as the, the sort of defining characteristic of narrative as being um, that it cannot fundamentally satisfy the reader. 
um, which is why storytelling is so ubiquitous, why we tell the same stories over and over again, because we can never reach a sense of closure. Um, so that incompleteness is due to the linguistic sign, right? It's due to the fact that text cannot convey meaning successfully. Um, so stories themselves cannot be complete. And those parallel lines also never meet. So it's this lack of closure uh, that I think links the train to storytelling and why it's been so ubiquitous in storytelling. And, and I, I really actually like the structure of the book is that you, you, you mentioned it in the introduction. It's not chronological and use the term multi-species assemblage. Asian America is a multi-species assemblage. And in reading the book, you talk about you have sources, your photography, paintings, stories, even contemporary movies. Uh, can you talk about that multi-species assemblage? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I pick up that term, and I think the other one is lateral reading yeah. um, from Rachel Lee, who's a literary critic at UCLA, and she uses that um, uh, those terms to in her book, The Exquisite Corpse of Asian America. So that book is specifically about Asian American culture production, but I thought it was a really useful concept for putting together this book, which is situated in multiple racial communities. Um, basically, I didn't want the racial railroad uh, to be a history of the train. Um, I didn't want to rely on chronology or archives in order to make the case for the cultural significance of the train, um, especially in relation to race. So the argument doesn't build on itself. Um, it doesn't progress as you move through the book. Um, and more importantly, even though I, I just said in my introduction that I talk about race in a comparative framework, it, it isn't actually about comparing how different racial groups um, represented or their relationship to the train. Um, in structuring my book this way, I really wanted to kind of highlight, I wanted to highlight actually all the things I also had to leave out. Um, and I also talk about this in my introduction. Um, and the editor was like, we don't usually include things that you don't get to <laughs> in a scholarly book. But I actually felt like it was really important uh, because I envisioned the structure of the book as kind of uh, choosing a particular path through the wealth of material that I found, and then hoping that the reader or other scholars uh, might choose an, another path, right? So that's kind of what I mean by alternate, like sort of the idea of moving laterally through the material. Um, and then just the idea of assemblage, which is I'm not trying to cohere something out of all of the different components that the book is made up of. I'm not trying to say um, there's this progress narrative or there's this one interpretation. Um, I'm arguing that it's very context dependent. It's very, it's dependent on the writer. It's dependent on the reader. It's dependent on the medium. Like all of these things have an effect and they don't necessarily cohere uh, together. Uh, let's talk about the chapters. You use this term, railroad creationism, and then you have a range of different, uh, sub, uh, let's say, sources to talk about this. You have this famous John Gass painting, American Progress. Can you talk about racial creationism? What do you mean, railroad crea uh, creationism? Yeah, so I use uh, railroad creationism within the context of uh, settler colonial critique. Mm. And I'm building off the work of art historians like W.J.T. Mitchell, Susan Danley, Roger Aiken, Matthew Johnstone and others. Um, so my argument in, or sort of my, the definition of the term railroad creationism is 
um, that the railroad has often been used visually as a way to tame the land or to civilize the land. Um, and that land, as it's controlled or occupied by Native peoples, is often imagined to be empty or featureless uh, prior to white settlement. And the arrival of the train or the presence of the train transforms that empty, featureless land into something productive and civilized and familiar. So out of the nothingness that was the continent or that was the land prior to American settlement or prior to Euro-American settlement, the train brings forth uh, civilization. So I deliberately chose uh, the term creationism, which is obviously religiously inflected, um, because it suggests that the train and the work that it does in these works is natural or inevitable or truthful with a capital T. Um, and that where once there was darkness, um, and a land that was kind of badly managed, right, by Native peoples, there is now the train and that this brings civilization and light. Um, so I talk about it in particular with the, the painting that you mentioned, uh, which is uh, by John Gast, and it's called American Progress. Um, and I talk about it in relation to another very famous 19th century um, painting or lithograph, I should say, about the railroad, which is across the continent, um, westward the course of empire makes its way. Um, and that's from, by an artist named Francis Flora Bond Palmer, but she was working under, in the workshop of Courier Knives. So that paint, that lithograph is perhaps the most famous, one of the most famous images out of 19th century visual culture. Um, but both of those works portray um, the land, right, um, as the land that's being occupied by Native Americans as dark and obscured and empty. And then the railroad kind of bisects both images. And it is as if it, you know, there's a trail of light afterward. And there is um, farmland and civilization and people and domesticity and industry and light. Um, so Importantly for my argument, both of them also depict native figures um, on the on the kind of edges of the of the images, and um, but the, they're being in the they're sort of represented in the process of being disappeared, like they're literally running off the frame. Um, and so um, there's a scholar, uh, Hilla A. Julia Robert, who calls this process deanimation. Um, in which lands that are under kind of native control are, are seen as being empty or la lacking kind of any features, lacking spirituality, lacking any kind of meaning. And that's ultimately what the railroad is used to justify, which is the removal of Native Americans. So the, the work that the train is doing in these visual in these visual works is really because there is a tremendous amount of anxiety in the nation um, that the U.S. won't be able to hold this land that you know it's under threat from Mexico or from Native tribes or you know other other you know factions and so there's a real fear that basically the U.S. that the that the sort of the nation won't be able to manage the land um, and so this is a way of sort of justifying, right? Um, justifying uh, the replacement of uh, native peoples because they they weren't managing it correctly. Um, and so there's a real fear there as well as a kind of ideology at work, I think. Um, th that painting, American Progress is quite famous, uh, but the 
again, I had I did not know about this lithograph that you mentioned across the continent. And I strongly encourage our listeners to just please Google the pictures. Uh, it's quite interesting to me because up to the point where there is a train you have, as you mentioned, the houses, there are people who are farming and they're Native Americans. But then ahead of that, it's just wilderness and it's ready to be kind of occupied. Um, let's talk about the movie. What I find fascinating in the book is that you talk about 19th century paintings and lithographs, and then you talk about the movie of uh, uh, Snowpiercer. And I was lucky to watch the movie like three months ago. <laughs> and when I watched the movie, I well, you could see the sort of class, uh, let's say, struggle there were, or, or, or these divisions of class. But um, it's quite interesting to put it into this context. Can you talk about that movie and tell us how Bong Joon-ho's movie Snowpiercer kind of reverses a settler colonial logic? Yeah, so in interviews for the film, uh, Bong talks about how he and his director of photography were very conscious about um, how to spatialize the insurrection. Mm. So Snowpiercer is about like the end of the world. Uh, humanity's surviving remnants are now uh, riding on this super train that is... Um, that is basically um, a, a class hierarchy with the very, very wealthy or the very privileged riding in the front and living in like unspeakable luxury and the tail sectioners riding in the back, um, living in unutterable like suffering, basically. Um, and so um, basically what happens is uh, Bong talks about how um, they wanted to spatialize that rebellion by having all of the shots, as many of the shots as possible, be oriented from a left to right movement. So kind of moving, to, yeah, moving to the right um, to really highlight like the kind of physical struggle of the rebels as they're moving through all the different train cars. So part of what I'm arguing is that, you know, there is this kind of visual, again, this is in relation to kind of 19th century visual art, there's a very strong tendency in um, this genre of painting that Roger Aiken calls the paintings of manifest destiny. Uh, there's a leftward trajectory in these paintings. And so um, basically these paintings, he argues, serve as a map that that point the United States towards the West. Like this is the direction that we need to go um, in order to be a nation, right? To be a whole nation. So, um, and I talk about in the book, and I think this is also really fascinating, the very strong compass orientation of American culture. Like we're very aware, not that Americans are more geographically literate, which I don't think is true at all. But because of our particular history of settler colonialism, we're very much aware of Manifest Destiny is a westward movement. So we're very aware of like uh, compass-oriented metaphors, right? Um, and so what I'm arguing is that uh, Bong's story, which is a story about like class, like class, you know, sort of class inequality and environmental injustice and all of these things is also a comment on the kind of visual logics of settler colonialism. Because as we discover in one of the scenes, um, there was a previous rebellion on the train and it was led by an Inuit woman who believed, right, that the earth the earth had entered this deep freeze because of human um, intervention. And she had believed that life was now sustainable off of the train, that basically temperatures had moderated enough that human life could continue. Um, and so that scene, that pivotal scene is shot um, kind of on a diagonal or a, a like a recessional orientation, but it maintains that kind of left to right 
orientation, that eastward orientation. Um, and so basically Snowpiercer, I'm arguing, is a rebuttal of the visual economies of settler colonialism in those moments. Um, and it's also a rebuttal of the kind of narratives of national like greatness or progress or individualism that the that the founder and kind of leader of the train who's named Wilford is propagating to the people who ride on it. Um, so it isn't it isn't a terribly successful critique, as I note in the book, because the Inuit woman is never named. We don't know any anything really about her. Um, and so it's a very um, it's a very problematic kind of in that kind of way. But I also think it's, you know, it's interesting to think about that film amongst other things that it's critiquing as a kind of rebuttal to to those visual economies. Uh, that, that, that westward compass metaphor, that was quite fascinating. It's, it could completely, like, like I'd never paid attention to that, but you're writing paintings, even in some movies, you can see that one. Uh, let's talk about literature a little bit. You talk about uh, Willa Cather, and I, I read the story uh, when when I read about that in your book. I hadn't read that story, The Affair at Grover's Station. Um, Willa Cather, so in her stories, she also depicts some kind of an anti-Chinese sentiment. <clears throat> so can you talk about that story and tell us uh, how these anti-Chinese um, sentiments are manifested in the story? Yeah, yeah. So... Um... Early in her career, Cather uh, wrote three short stories uh, that focus on the Chinese. And one of them is The Affair at Grover mm. Station. It's kind of the longest and most developed of the three stories. So like many of Cather's stories, this is set in the West. It's set in Wyoming. And the villain is a half Chinese, half Jewish man named Freymark, um, who murders a man um, that he views as a rival for the love of a woman. And Framark is a railroad agent. And one of the key points in the story is that he's able to commit the murder and get away with it because of his familiarity, familiarity with the rail network and his connections with the Union Pacific, where it, who is his employer. So the story is obviously racist and anti-Semitic. Um, but the way that Cather's anti-Chinese racism manifests itself is by insisting that the Chinese are actually uh, the embodiment of the anti-modern. They've outlived their time and are thus antithetical in every way to the United States and all of the qualities of progressivism, individualism, and freedom that it's supposed to exemplify, right, as the leader of like the world. Um, but the problem is, is Framark is actually, he's very canny, like he's portrayed as being extremely clever and really able to understand the workings of kind of capital. I mean, he steals money, he's able to get away with it, he commits murder, he's able to get away with it. Um, and so he, in many ways, his ability to manage these kinds of marks of modernity um, which is even embodied in his name, Framark is like free money. Uh, that's what it translates into. Um, he's able to manage the railroad, which is the epitome of modernity and American expansion. And that I think I argue is signaling a huge concern on Cather's part, Cather's part about the Chinese and their presence in the country. So there's a lot of anti-Chinese racism um, in the early 20th century, and it takes a lot of different forms. But part of what I argue in that chapter is that Cather's form is really unusual because she focuses so much on the issue of temporality and modernity, um, and that that is what divides 
basically the Chinese from the American. And that's why they're also dangerous. Um, there's something anachronistic about them. And the railroad is the symbol of that. Their ability, Framark's ability to sort of travel on the railroad and use the railroad to his means is, is a sign of their uh, kind of diabolical presence. And uh, you also talk about American Chinese authors such as Frank Chin, Maxine Hong Kingston, and again, I must confess my ignorance, I did not know many of the names. So I guess even for our listeners or people who will hopefully pick up to read the book, it's also a great start to to, to read authors who are not maybe put into those uh, northern canons of American literature. So, uh, do you, well, it, I'll leave it up to you which author you want to pick up. Uh, can you talk about how Asian Americans are sort of right back, They how they represent their presence or maybe the erasure from uh, from America in their stories. Yeah, that how you put it is really is really on point, I think. So um I noted earlier, right, that I think I noted earlier that many Chinese American artists and writers portray the railroad in their works. Like this is this is an important mm -hmm. aspect of kind of Chinese American literary canon. So I talk about Frank Chin uh, Maxine Hong Kingston and David Henry Wang, who are like three of the most famous Asian American authors, three of the most famous Chinese American authors um, in the American literary canon. And I discuss um, I discuss their their ability or their sort of representation of the train as um, uh, for as a as something that's generative of storytelling or of text. Um, and that that is kind of, even because they don't have access, right, to the experiences, the lived experiences of Chinese railroad workers because they don't, it, Kingston, in Kingston case, it, Kingston's case, her grandfather um, came to California and um, helped build the transcontinental according to family lore, but she doesn't know anything about, there's no written records, she never met him. Um, so there is nothing for her to go on other than this story that is told by her parents. Um, and so all three of the authors think of the train as, as something that really generates stories. Like they can imagine things because of the train, even though they can't access the experience, uh, the experiences of the workers themselves who built the railroad. Um, and so the railroad occupies this really um, conflicted position, I think, within Chinese American culture, because on the one hand, it's a sign of China, historic like exploitation of the Chinese. It's a, it's, it's a symbol of the pain they endured. It's also a grave for many of the Chinese railroad workers who were just buried alongside the tracks. Um, but it is also, um, it's also a symbol, a signal to them of something. Kingston talks about In China Men, which is the, the text that I look at, which is her family memoir. Um, she writes that as a child, when she was told that her grandfather built the railroad, she thought that he mistakenly thought that he had worked on the railroad that crossed above near her home in Stockton, California. Um, so she there's a way in which she takes that story and run, makes it immediate, make, brings it into her sphere of existence, essentially. Um, and she also talks about how the railroads, she views the railroads as a message. Um, it's this very evocative phrase she has, like the railroad is a message. And all she needs to do, which of course she can't do, is figure out what the message is. So it's it's this idea, again, that I talked about earlier, the train embodies this kind of contradiction. It's there as a symbol, but it can't be read. It can't be interpreted. Um, and so 
much of the book, much of all, you know, in all of these Chinese American authors' works, they're attempting to read that text. They're attempting to understand what that text is, even though they also know that there is no way to verify that their interpretations or their stories are the correct ones or the honest ones or the authentic ones. But I think in in transforming an absence right into kind of not transforming the absence but making the absence the center of kind of their explanation of what it means to be chinese american um they're grappling with um that history like that, that kind of history of exploitation and erasure and uh Another interesting part of the book is that is where you talk about photography and there's these moments when the railroad is completed. Well, I'll let you explain it. Golden Spike and the photograph that is taken at that moment and how Chinese rail workers were erased from those photographs. Can you talk about that, please? Oh, sorry. So possibly the, the most famous photograph in 19th century America is... Um, what is known as the champagne photo. And it was taken by Andrew Russell on May 10th, 1869 in Promontory Summit, Utah, to mark the official completion of the Transcontinental Railroad. So the photograph shows, and again, if you Google it, um, you've probably, most of our listeners have probably seen it or have heard about it. Um, it shows a large group of men, railroad executives, um, local townspeople, workmen, surrounding these two engines, the Central Pacific Engine Jupiter and the Union Pacific Engine 119. And they're facing each other on the track. And on one tr in, on one cow catcher, a man is holding out like a, a couple of bottles of champagne. And on the other, um, facing him, the other man is holding out like champagne glasses. So it's meant to represent the kind of union of the country, right? Um, the photo does not contain or include any Chinese workers, even though we know they were there that day. They were photographed over the course of that day, but none were present or allowed to be present in the official photograph. Um, so this photograph is, of course, a microcosm of how Chinese labor has been exploited and then erased historically. Um, and so the afterlives of that photograph are very interesting to me. Um, in 1969, which was the centennial uh, at some celebrations marking the centennial of the completion of the railroad, um, the Secretary of Transportation at that time, John Bolp, made some kind of remark like, who else but Americans could have done this, right? Who else but Americans could have dug granite out of the mountains or something? Um, and of course, <laughs> no one on that stage or no one who was honored that day was also, that there was no recognition of the Chinese even a hundred years later, right? So I talk about how Chinese American, ordinary Chinese Americans, they actually reenact that photograph. Um, they reenacted it at the 145th anniversary of the completion of the railroad. They reenacted it in 2019 at the 150th anniversary. Um, and the entire image, and I include this photograph in my book, is filled with Chinese people. Um, and so they are reenacting, but they're not um, they're not recreating, right? They are uh, sort of trying to reclaim that image or reclaim that labor um, after the fact. Um, and so there is there's another there's a separate chapter on that kind of idea of reenactment like what it means to actually try to reenact re a scene in history that doesn't include you um and so that photograph in particular is is key to that and uh in the course of the book then from you shift from chinese 
American to African Americans experience. Uh, so it's kind it's very interesting for me if you could explain why you make that transition. And uh, if you and, and you also talk about train race and space, how they're connected. I must say that when I came across the chapter, the first thing I thought about was uh, France Fanon. And uh, you mentioned him in the book as well. So I guess it's impossible to talk about train and race without acknowledging, recognizing Fanon's influence. Can you talk about this too? Why you make that shift from Chinese Americans to African Americans and then explain how race, train, and space are interconnected, how racial identities are constructed in relation to a train. Yeah, so the railroad, as I as I mentioned, and I talk about in the introduction, the railroad has been a very useful tool in justifying and carrying out a lot of kind of um, racist hierarchies and projects of exclusion and extermination. It's also been used to control the movement of communities of color throughout US history. So the Chinese are not the only group um, to have experienced that kind of racism vis-a-vis -vis the railroad. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the railroad is instrumental in the dislocation of native populations and carrying out settler colonialism. It's been used as a carceral space for the deportation of, of migrants. Um, and um, I am particularly interested, I make the transition to African-Americans, uh, African-American cultural history, because um, the African-American relationship to the train speaks to a particular kind of legacy of anti-Blackness that plays out on the train. So historically speaking, Plessy versus Ferguson, that was the Supreme Court case in 1896 that basically dictated that segregation was the law of the land. And that was um, that case was about riding on a train, about riding on a Jim Crow train. So we live in a country where anti-Blackness is often expressed in terms of space, um, along with like kind of social segregation in public places. We have redlining, we have white flight, we have environmental racism. Um, we have um, police officers murdering um, African-American people for simply being in the wrong kind of space or, or being present in a certain space that was perceived as a threat, even if that space, like in the case of Breonna Taylor, is is her own home. Um, so because of this, right, Catherine McKittrick, who's a, um, a geographer, talks about how Black, Black matters are spatial matters, right? And we can see that really in um, African-American literary representations of the 19th and 20th century, which are filled with narratives about Jim Crow and the Jim Crow train car and how the experience of writing Jim Crow essentially despatializes Black subjects, meaning they become like an absent presence um, or shattered presence and that they bear the brunt of a kind of discursive and physical violence. And that's where Fanon comes in, right? He talks about that scene on the train, that famous scene on a train. So... Um, so there is a there it is a hugely it's a really loaded space in terms of African-American literary production. Um, and it's particularly interesting to me that the train is so um, important, right, because in the antebellum era, right, before um, before the Civil War, um, the metaphor that enslaved peoples used um, to imagine freedom was the Underground Railroad, right? So this, even though 
the majority of enslaved people would have never ridden on a train in their lives or perhaps even seen one uh, because um, railroads, railroad tracks were not as, um, they weren't as present in the antebellum South as they were in the North. So this notion that black movement is often perceived as threatening or violent, you know, is perceived as a threat, um, is interesting to think about because in point of fact, as many of these narratives point out, Black movement is often a way of, of fleeing white violence against Black bodies. Um, and so the experience of riding on the train for a lot of these, um, as represented in these works, is often alienating. It's often um, despatializing is the term um, that I use for those reasons. And uh, uh, you, you, another fascinating part of the book is music and folk songs which represent the train and experience of riding on a train. And you, your argument is that in music and folk songs, that experience is represented or manifested differently as opposed to literature. How is that? Yes. Can you talk about that aspect? Sure. So, you know, African-American literary texts in the early 20th century tend to portray the train via the framework of Jim Crow and despatialization. It's a form of like bodily and like psychic alienation. This isn't how the train signifies across all African-American culture. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. So in African-American folk music and jazz from the same period, you have so, I mean, jazz is basically, or sorry, the blues, excuse me, the blues. Um, the blues basically was born on a train station, right? It was born in a train station in Tutwiler, Mississippi, according to legend. Um, and so there are a number of references to the train in some of the most famous blues lyrics or the most famous blues songs out there. But these songs take a different approach to the train. So whereas Black textual narrative focuses on um, how Jim Crow disciplines and erases Black presence, African-American folk music and the blues portray the train as enabling Black mobility. And that mobility is not... Um, is not subject to the social practices of white supremacy. So for example, often in blue songs, the train signals uh, the end of a romantic relationship. So the singer is watching her, his or her lover go away on a train, or the singer is getting on a train to escape, you know, the kind of the devastation of being, of being dumped by, um, by a past love. And that, those songs are obviously sad, right? They're meant to evoke heartbreak, but they are describing a kind of mobility that is not dependent on white spatializing practices. So they're not fleeing violence, right? They're fleeing heartache, they're fleeing love, they're, they're looking for love, right? So it's a form of black movement that is painful, yes, um, but is outside of the control of kind of segregation. So I just want to highlight that in saying that, I'm not saying these songs aren't political because I think they really, really are. Um, but they are not sort of, they are not beholden to this idea of despatialization. So one of the examples I talk about in the book is this very famous blues song by Ma Rainey called Traveling Blues. And it's been it's been written about by a number of scholars. Um, but in the last stanza, she says, I'm dangerous in blue, I can't stay here no more. Um, here come my train folks and I've got to go. And what's key about that is she is a black woman on the move, on a train, without any idea of where she's heading because she's had her heart broken. Um, but she is dangerous, quote unquote, um, not to, I argue, not to a town or to an individual, 
but an entire system, right, that depends upon controlling black bodies. Um, and so that's what makes her dangerous is that she's literally just moving. Um, and so there are a couple of songs that I, I talk about in this regard, but I think it, it it's really important, you know, I, I, I think it's really important to sort of tease out the use of the railroad or the sort of representation of the railroad throughout black culture. So it's, and I talk about that, I talked about this before, it's depicted in one way in literary culture from the early 20th century. It's depicted in another way in like oral culture from that time period. And then it has a different valence in the kind of late 20th century, early 21st century um, and kind of speculative fiction by like authors like Colson Whitehead, right? With the Underground Railroad. So it really... It depends on on where when it's coming up and by whom, but um, but it can mean a lot of different things within the same community. Um, before ending the conversation, is there any other project or books you're currently working on? So I am looking at um, I'm going to look at it's coming out of the railroad book, but it's okay. particularly looking at Asian American. <laughs> Contemporary Asian American fiction that depicts the 19th century American West, and I put West in quotation marks, um, and it's looking at the kind of ways in which um, these works, these literary works, grapple with or don't grapple with the kind of questions about um, settler colonialism. So it's looking at kind of it's trying to make is trying to insert the question of settler colonialism into Asian American, contemporary Asian American literary kind of culture um, and what the significance of that might mean. Mm. So that's that's one project. And then a second project, which is in the very, very early stages is about, and it's again, stemming from the railroad, it's thinking about questions of infrastructure more broadly um, and the ways in which um, infrastructure intersects with kind of race and racism. Um, and so it's 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 sort of taking some of the questions I have about the train, some of the contradictions that I think are really interesting about the train and and thinking about them kind of outside of the train, thinking about yeah. it larger as infrastructural build projects. Yeah. Um, so those are the two things, but they're very in the very early stages. Yeah. Uh, what you just said, I was reminded of, I don't know his name, the transport or infrastructure minister in the United States. Currently, he had this interview, I think, I think it was a couple of years ago when Joe Biden was, you know, they were arguing for having a big budget to for, for the infrastructure. And, and, and the minister mentioned somebody in New York who was a chief architect. He said that the bridges are deliberately built low so in the 1950s or 60s, so buses couldn't pass because a lot of African-Americans would use buses. And the main idea was to keep them away from white beaches. And a lot of people uh, kind see. of may, yeah, laughed at these remarks that it's so sort of stupid. But I did some research and apparently it was true. That's what, uh, I forgot the name of that person, the chief architect or, like I, I don't remember the name, but uh, well, obviously, yes, city planning or infrastructure is also related or in, uh, the, the whole idea is intertwined with, with race as well. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, Dr. Jolie, thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts on new books. At work. I absolutely enjoyed this book, and I think reading the book is fascinating. I think it's not a typical literary criticism book. You have movies, songs, literature, paintings, everything is in there, and and, right. and every chapter is different from the other one. So it's a great work of, I personally felt, it, I learned about history, I learned about literature as well, and also Asian American literature that I did not know much about. Thank you very much for speaking with us on New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.